Welcome to the Bucket List Life Podcast with Trav Bell, the world's number one bucket list expert. Bucket List Life's mission is to help you get off the treadmill, stop Groundhog Days, hack your habits, and live a regret-free life. Because we know life's way too short not to live your bucket list life. So please welcome your host, Trav Bell, the Bucket List Guy. Hey, Bucket Lister, welcome to another episode of the Bucket List Life Podcast, and I'm here with Greg Schindler. How are you, buddy? I'm fantastic. Now that I'm getting to talk to you, how are you? <laughs> and we've been talking for probably about half an hour already, so we're mates, we've caught up on the gossip. I'm so stoked we can hang out like this and talk everything that's going on in your world, and you're a super inspiring guy, good buddy, and love following your journey. My question, my first question, though. Is how is that book coming along, mate? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, there's no you're breaking up or anything on this. Is no, there? no, 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 no. What'd good. you say? <laughs> it's sporadic, you know. I mean, you've written a book. You know, did you just blast it all out in four weeks? Or I mean, some people do. It took me ten years to do it. Yeah, yeah. So I think I've got I've doubled that. I think I'm close to twenty, but. Um, you know, when you were, when you were really, you know, pushing me and sending me those WhatsApp things, they were effective because I was like, I know it's coming, I know it's coming. And I would take screenshots of, you know, when I did some word count and send it to you, it's been pretty stagnant the last, you know, four or five months, but what would it be about? You know, that's a great question. So full transparency and, and I love these shows like this because you start to just it's like truth serum. You know, you start just purging all this truth. I always wanted to be a fiction writer, right? I always imagined. And I think, you know, I was, I was pretty good at it, right? I could, you know, and I was good in English class and I was good at story and storytelling and, and writing. So I envisioned writing this fiction story for many, many years. And then I think I heard something that says, you know, write what you know. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, there's a memoir, there's a biography. And then it's like, what have I done that's so, you know, interesting enough that anybody would want to, you know, to read about it. And if I had to answer the question of what it would be about, I would say that really about resilience, you know, the themes would be adversity to impact and about resilience. Because, you know, Trav, you and I have spoken a little bit, you know, about my uh, sort of some of the past and my background and some of the trauma there. And then, you know, what I've done for people and hopefully, you know, some, some meaningful change. So I think it would be about that, you know, and these lessons that we learn along the way. Look, I always say we all have our stuff, right? You have your stuff. I have my stuff. Mine's no bigger or more dramatic or more traumatic than anyone else's. It's mine and, and everybody has it. It's, you know, and our good friend Charlie says this all the time. It's not what happens to you in life is not near as important as what you do about it. And I think that the growth and the lessons that we can learn and if we can share them in some sort of relatable and or unique way. So for me, it would be, you know, there is, it's a pretty, and we may get into it here. I mean, I'm going to follow your lead, but you know, it's a pretty wild ride and a pretty wild story um, there for a while. So it would probably be about that resilience. Yeah. Where did you grow up, by the way? Where'd you grow up? I grew up south of Houston, Texas in a little blue collar neighborhood called Sagemont. And dig into it. I mean, what's the first five chapters about without going into detail about what built that resilience? So my parents were from this part of East Texas that was very blue collar, logging and, you know, oil field work and things like that. My mom was young and ambitious and extremely hardworking. She was the oldest of five and she was the only girl. 
and she had four younger brothers. And so she was the, you know, she worked in the flower shop at 12 to help buy Christmas presents for her little brothers. You know, my grandmother was a librarian in the local high school for 40 years, that kind of thing. And she wanted out. She wanted to get to the big city, make a better life. My dad was from the same part of the, the, the neck of the woods, but he was being dragged into this dream and this vision by my mom. And he was also a guy who was tormented with demons, man. He was the kind of alcoholic that they make movies about. And, you know, one quick sidebar on the way to Houston, they stopped by Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I think he had gotten some job there. My mom picked up a job at a factory making coats and it was in the middle of winter. And her very first day on the on the job, they had one car. He's like, you know, I'll, I'll be by here at 536, whatever, to pick you up. And 536 comes around. She's standing outside. The factory's closed. And she didn't have any money for a coat. She had bought one on layaway. Interestingly enough, ironically enough, she was making coats as a job. But she's standing there in the snow waiting for him. And, you know, six, seven, eight o'clock. And the very first night there, and they're young. And she's young, right? Um, newly married. And he was off getting drunk while she stood outside in the snow. So this is who he was. They moved to Houston, buy a home in this starter neighborhood. And, you know, there was sort of ups and downs, right? There were some good months and some bad months. And then it gets, as alcoholism can do and, and typically does, it's a progressive disease and it starts to get worse and worse and worse. And so, you know, he was my little league coach. He would We would forfeit games and he would get kicked out for showing up drunk and fighting with the umpires and the parents in the stands and stuff like this. He would pick me up from kindergarten and I would, you know, we would stop at a bar and I would color on a bar stool while he got drunk. And sometimes he got in a fight. Sometimes... I went home in a police car. My buddies thought it was cool that I got to ride in a police car. I think their parents were telling them, <laughs> it's probably not, you know, not as cool as you think. And so this goes on and on. And, and there was a, a lot of emotional and verbal abuse and some physical abuse. And it ends um, when I was 12 years old. I was playing outside in the street with my, my buddies. And about two weeks prior to this, she had had enough and she had told him to move out. And so he had gotten an apartment nearby a couple miles away as I recall and so he wasn't supposed to be there and I looked up and I saw his truck drive into the driveway and he stumbled out clearly drunk and this in and of itself was not really unusual as he started going towards the front door I got that pit in my stomach that we get sometimes when you just say man something doesn't feel right I don't know um, because again this wasn't new and I told my buddies I'll be back I'm gonna run in and check on my mom and so I ran inside and I could hear her screaming in, from the back of the house where their bedroom was the minute I got in the door and pleading more like it. And so I, I ran back there. And as I turned the corner, I found him with his hand on her throat and her against the wall. Now, my dad was tall. Um, he was about six, two or three. My mom was not. She's petite. She's probably 110, 15 pounds, and she's about five, five. And so he had her against the wall. And I, I went in and I said, you know, please, daddy, let her go. And he looked at me and to my surprise, he did. He let her go and it was a different look in his eye. I mean, he was mean anyway and he was intimidating and I was terrified of him. I was this little 12-year-old kid and, and um, he pushed past me and he went into the closet and I was staring into the closet like this, wondering, was he in the closet? And I felt my hand, my right hand being dragged by my mom and we started going towards the door. But before we could get there, he caught up to us and he grabbed us and he shoved us out onto the front porch and he made us go down to the end of the porch and get on our knees. And he had a 12 gauge and that's what he had been getting in the closet. And, you know, this this is what made it non-negotiable. And so we're on our knees. It's in the evening. It's a few months before 
school lets out. Um, but everybody back then played all out outside and it was the neighborhood of, you know, four and five siblings in every home. I was an only child, so I didn't have that. I was always jealous in the evenings when they went home and they were all still together and, you know, I was, you know, but Hey, we got a good imagination out of it. So we're on our knees and we're sitting there. He's got the gun on us. The neighbors are pleading, you know, don't do this. Don't do this. Put the gun down. And my mom is, she's just quiet, man. She's just sitting there, tears streaming down her face. I do believe, I thought this is it. And I'm looking up at him and I'm, you know, I'm saying, daddy, please don't kill us, please. And he's gone. And you can see in his eyes, he's just, there's just nothing there. And my mom, on the reflection of the glass from the living windows, I could see the sun was setting. I mean, I was like, I remember thinking, I remember saying to myself, she's really pretty. And uh, one of the neighbors got enough courage to kind of come out into the middle of the street and say, hey, you know, put the gun down, put the gun down. And he turned to point the gun at him. And when he did, I grabbed my mom and ran between our houses and shoved her over the fence into the neighbor's yard and then ran inside and said, he's got a gun. Please call the police. And before the police could arrive, he um, he got in his truck and drove away. And sometime between that night, it was on a Friday and Monday morning, he took his own life with that same shotgun. And that was how the first 12 years Oh, uh, that's that's the first several chapters, you know, Trav. And, and... Yeah, definitely, dude. Like, it's... Yeah. oh wow, I'm I'm in a whole other place. <laughs> you know, look, you don't know it at the time, but that day is, you know, that's the day my childhood ended, right? I mean, that was. There's a whole lot of. I'll have to. I will have to write this in the book because there's some crazy stories that happened just around that. Just play this back for the last ten minutes, get it transcribed, and and uh, there's your chapters done, buddy. Suffice to say, you don't drink now. I do not. When did you go sober? So I battled it, Trav. I did. You know, back then we didn't have therapy. I'll answer your question directly first. I've been sober for six and a half years. I was sober previously for about four years and, you know, it's a it's a cunning, baffling disease. So I went back out for a few years and, and drank and then sobered up again. But, you know, back then we didn't know about therapy. Even if we did, we probably couldn't have afforded it. But that said, my mom would have found a way. She was the kind that worked two and three jobs. To I never went without. While we were considered America poor, I never, you know, I got new school clothes at the beginning of the year. I always had new tennis shoes and stuff. So I want to make sure that, you know, I'm not trying to, to mischaracterize anything. We didn't have a lot of money. And it was a small little home that I think was probably $30,000 or $28,000 back then. And it's probably a lot of money. And But she worked hard to make sure that I always had what I needed. And But after that, she wound up, meeting someone else. It's someone that she had been working for and marrying him. And my life changed radically. I went to this new neighborhood. He was a successful businessman, a successful entrepreneur, a real estate developer. And my life changed for the better in literally every single way. But it was a different, it was different. It was a big transition coming from this blue collar neighborhood where we had a community swimming pool to a country club with a golf course and a pool and and snow skiing. And, you know, he made sure that I had an opportunity to be exposed to a lot of these, you know, really amazing things in life. And so despite how well all of that was going, I couldn't receive it. And so I started trying to escape and I would, you know, smoke pot. I started falling in with that crew at school. You know, you find the, the, you know, I don't know if call them stoners or what, but just the guys who were a little bit more adventurous. And then, you know, started drinking and I just wanted to escape. You know, I didn't know who I was. I was a chameleon. I tried to make sure that everybody liked me because I just wasn't quite sure who I was supposed to be. And so I battled it for a long time. You always kind of know that it's 
a problem, but until you're ready to do something about it, until you've had enough, there's not any of the, there's nothing that, you know, anyone can say. Yeah. I mean, this is a crazy pivot, but how did that lead you to be an expert in the longevity space? So I think there's also a certain amount of resilience and, and survivor mentality that happens. You get when something like this happens to you. And so I've always been that guy. If you said, oh, you can't do that, watch me. I've always believed that I could do whatever it is I needed to set out to do. If I had to learn it or figure it out, I was pretty good at, at you know, figuring and sorting things out. And so interestingly enough, and look, I don't want to, with your listeners here, they're going to be like, you know, I can't tell this part. I can't answer your question without telling this other part of the story. So it leads there through my dad, my adoptive father. He, when he married my mom, he adopted me and gave me his last name. He became my best friend. He was just an amazing human, not an alcoholic, and just just incredible in every way. And then he, as he got older, his health started failing, and he was, he was competitive. He was a baseball player in high school. He was a baseball player in college. He went on a full ride. He was a pitcher. He was nasty, you know, on the mound. And so he's a competitive guy. He was successful, competitive in business, everything. And when his health started failing, he changed a little bit. And on October 7th, 2010... I was driving to a meeting in Dallas and I got a phone call from my mom and she was wailing in the phone and it's hard to make out, but all I could make out was that my dad had died. And man, I was a mess because this guy was like my rock, you know? And and when I say he was my best friend, he really was. I spent more time with him than anybody. I got on a Southwest flight and I flew home. And when I landed, a friend picked me up and took me to this mini storage unit. And it was yellow crime scene tape everywhere. And that morning he um he got up and he they lived in a high rise condo and he put these five by seven index cards in the plants and just various locations and would say like water this one twice a week and water this plant three times a week and he went to the store and he stocked up on all the things that they you know that she liked in the pantry and he he took her car to the car wash and he filled it up with gas and when he came back and put it in he brought her a diet coke on her you know where she was getting ready with her makeup and stuff and gave her a kiss and said goodbye and um he drove across the street to this this mini storage warehouse lot where he had rented a unit for 30 days and um he raised the door and went inside and he took his own life with a with a handgun i think he didn't want to be a burden on the rest of us with his health failing and with him not feeling like he could compete anymore in life. I just, he was one of those guys, and this may sound strange and it's just not to me. Um, he was deeply religious. He was, he was a man who believed that he was going to a better place. And so with his, you know, not being able to compete as well, or like he used to in business, not being able to, to do the things in life he wanted to do and not live fully, this felt like that was his only way out. And I think that's really what led me to where I am to now to be in this longevity space because, and I can't tell you that, you know, we can't connect the dots straight in a straight line, right? No, no. But look, we, you know, you talk about bucket list. We talked, we were baseball, you know, fans. We were Astros fans and we went to a lot of Astros games together and we were always going to go to Yankee Stadium or to Fenway or to you know, Wrigley and just some of the storied ballparks around the U.S. And that was one of our things. We were going to do that. And just year after year, you know, he would find another reason that, oh, this isn't a good time. You know, we shouldn't do this. And so it became a cautionary tale to me in, in a way. And I just... I started, you know, understanding more and more about from a nagging injury. I was a Krav Maga guy for about a decade. I always had injuries, you know, from something, you know, 
you're a surfer and you go hard and heavy and you do crazy things and you know just all had these a quarter ultra... zone and just had a quarter zone like three days ago. Don't do <laughs> it. We'll, we'll get into it. <laughs> we'll get into it. Don't do it. Um, but I had this injury and as I had gotten this injection of like amniotic fluid uh, in my in my shoulder and it made it feel better and so one thing leads to another. I'm an entrepreneur and you know a few months later I wind up in the business of opening these these clinics and treating people for joint pain and stuff. And so I saw what it could do. And that road led to, you know, me being, you know, called this longevity CEO and opening what at the time was probably the, you know, the world's most advanced stem cell clinic and research lab for really longevity. And and honestly what that means, longevity is a big word. It's just helping people live healthier longer. Hang on, back the truck up. Back the truck up a little bit. Hang on. How did you just stumble into opening up all, all these clinics? There's this just... <laughs> yeah. So this is a business story. FYI bucket listers who are out there listening, watching to this and thank you by the way. So let, let, let we'll circle back to that. But when did we first meet? Oh this I love this story. I the parts of the story you may not even know. So we met in St. Augustine, Florida at a DLP event. You were the keynote speaker and I think it was the same time that Oz Perlman did that insane magic show. Was that the same? That was insane. Yeah. No, that yeah. Was it was Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. crazy. It was crazy. Um, <laughs> but I saw you get up there and it was the first time I'd ever seen you. I didn't know anything at all about what you were going to talk about. And I sat down and there were those you had the 80 squares on the table in front of everybody. And there was a pin next to it and you said put an X in each box for the number of years you've been alive. I still have my original form because this was this was pivotal for me. It really was. I've used this in presentations before because when I put the X's in all the boxes, I was 55 at the time. So this was two years ago or a little over two. Man, I had half a row and two more rows left. And when you look at that visual, it did something to me. There was an epiphany that I had that I looked at this because I think there's a certain part of us that we always are a little bit invincible and we're always going to do something someday and tomorrow and we've got time. But when I looked at it visually on that piece of paper, I was blown away. And your talk, I've heard you now speak a number of times and I'm always blown away. I mean, the last time we were in Dallas and... uh that one was a tearjerker, man. That one was moved. But I came up to you after the show and I said, you don't know me. I said, but I I have this longevity stem cell thing in Costa Rica. And, you know, I want to talk to you because I'm in the business of making more boxes, making more rows of boxes. Definitely. And I wanted and to talk to you. So that's, we that's how we out. met. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. It's often when you put the 80 squares in front of everyone, they're either like epiphany or fuck this guy. <laughs> so it goes, yeah, you got to read the room. You got to read the room. <laughs> so you you're in the business, and and you've just leaned right into it of adding more boxes to that eighty. You know, and one of the things that I've got to share with you, man, and and you were right at that pivotal time because I, I hit fifty last year and I got this tattoo. Now there we go. You don't see that Twenty seventy three hundred years. So nineteen seventy three. To 2073, hopefully it says that. <laughs> it was in the mirror, so I, I don't know. But 100 years. So on my bucket list now, thank you very much, mate. You contributed to this, is to become a centenarian. And you and the people that we know, more so you, that is very possible, isn't it? I think so. I think if it is possible, now is the first time in history that it's been that way. And for a lot of reasons. 
we know more about the machine right now, how it works and a lot of the breakthroughs that have happened in, in quote, the longevity space. And, and let me just say this quickly, longevity is a big word. You know, it's economy, it's a movement, it's a science, it's a lifestyle, it's, it's a lot of different things. But the way I like to think about it is just living healthier longer when we talk about longevity. And that begs a an agreed upon definition of what aging is. And so aging is the functional decline of a living organism over a period of time. And I say this a lot. If you can't figure out how to slow the functional decline of this living organism down, the period of time part doesn't matter because nobody's signing up to be a centenarian if the last 20 years are going to be in poor health with no quality of life, no mobility, no cognition, terrible immune system. I mean, you're just not doing it. And so we have to be able to, and you know, how do we functionally decline? Well, in our cognition, you know, you need to remember why you went into the kitchen, you know, as we age, you got to have your faculties intact. We decline in our musculoskeletal system and our mobility is something you spent most of your life advocating and setting the example for in health and wellness and exercise. We have to have that. We have to have our immune system. We have to have our vascular system. We have to have our aesthetics and sexual wellness. There's studies that show that people who live longer into you know, uh, add to a hundred years or, you know, just longer than the average, have more intimacy later in life. And people who are happy with what they see in the mirror. This is the first notes that I'm making today. You want to repeat that? If you have people who are more, people, you will live longer. Uh, that's quote, what the data shows. Wow. That's what the data yeah. shows is that people who did live longer typically were more intimate later in life than than those who weren't. Um, and there's so some studies there, out there. Is there a key performance indicator around that? Like how many times a day, a week? What are we talking, uh, Doctor Greg? Uh, I don't recall the study, uh, Trav, but I think that I, you know, I think that you know, at least a couple times a day would probably uh, would probably do okay. it. Thank you for um, that description. Thank you. But, you know, in all seriousness, the, you know, this longevity, we have to slow the functional decline part down. And if we can do that, and that's when you hear people talking about slowing and reversing the aging process, that's really what we're talking about, but we can measure it. And I think it's important if, if listeners are going to follow and nerd out with me for just a little bit longer here. In 2007, the Yamanaka factors were discovered. In 2012, you won a Nobel Prize for it. And everybody's going, what is that? There's a professor, doctor, PhD, MD in, in Japan who took an adult skin cell and he reversed its age all the way back to an embryonic stem cell, to what we call a, a pluripotent stem cell. And he identified four transcription factors, four genes known as the Yamanaka factors. Now, he did that in 2007. In 2012, which is only 12 years ago, he won a Nobel Prize for it in five years. And, you know, Nobel Prizes are usually like 30, 40, 50 years down the road, right? Um, it was that big of a breakthrough, but it was recent. The moral of the story or the, the thing I want people to take away is a lot of these advancements have only happened in the in the very recent history. In 2013, we saw our first epigenetic clock. That's how you, you, you've probably done this. You get your biological age versus your chronological age. It's using an epigenetic clock to do that, to, to create that calculus, if you will. How can we do that? There's a lot of, so true diagnostics is here in the, in the U S I like them a lot. It's a, they can ship it to your home. You do a little pinprick on your finger, four or five drops of blood. And what they're doing is they're taking that and they're looking at how you're methylating DNA by looking at hundreds of thousands of, of markers and biomarkers on your genome and they say, okay, well, this is, you know, how this person is methylating DNA. And they, you answer a subjective questionnaire, a lot about lifestyle. Do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you sit? Are you sedentary? Lots of these kinds of questions. And based on your age and how you've answered the subjective questionnaire, and then the data that they get 
off of how you're methylating DNA, they have an algorithm that says, okay, this is how you are with other people who answer the question the same way with respect to your biological age. So I'm 57 now, 48 biologically. Oh, there you go. People run up to me at these things. Yeah, and it sounds great. And, And it is. But I always say to people, what does that mean? What does it mean to you? Because people come up and say, hey, Greg, I'm 15 years younger than, than, you know, biologically than I am chronologically. And I'm like, okay, that's awesome. What does it mean to you? Do you think you're going to live 15 years longer? Do you think you're, you know, what do you, what do you think? And that's where you start to see the deer in the headlights look. And there's a lot of nuances around epigenetics, but here's the cool thing and the thing that everybody should really take away from this. And that is that these are lifestyle factors. Epigenetics, epi means external or above. So it means, you know, our epigenome is external to our genome. These are things that can be influenced by lifestyle, meaning how do we eat? How do we sleep? How do we move? How do we manage stress? What sunlight, right? What, you know, in our environment, all of these things impact our epigenome or our epigenetics, which are which genes are being expressed in us at any given time. And, you know, one long ago, we thought that Whatever we were dealt, the hand we were dealt, that's the hand we had to play, you know, from a genetic lottery standpoint. Now we, you know, and and Dr. Sinclair, you know, David Sinclair, who wrote Lifespan, probably the leading geneticist, epigeneticist right now in terms of a lot of the work that he's done. He uncovered a lot of these things and in conjunction with other, you know, his his peers, but he's kind of led the way and, and published a Pivotal Nature magazine publication. And then again, these are all things that have only happened in the last decade, more or less. And then last year we saw the WHO, the World Health Organization, formally recognized aging as a disease in 2022. Wow. Isn't that crazy? And the idea is, and this is what I tell people, they say, what do you think aging is a disease? And I said, it doesn't matter if you think it is or it isn't. This is a, uh, this is not a new debate. We've been talking about this for 200 years. But when we think about things like that, when we shift it into, well, aging is a disease instead of just this inevitable decline to the bottom, then we start to innovate and we start to come up with ways to mitigate the aging process, cure this disease or treat this disease. And that's the important part because you get really smart guys in these back rooms with these killer toys and these amazing science labs and they start innovating. Well, how, and, but look, the nine hallmarks of aging was ratified in in 2013 and those at a cellular level, we understand exactly how we age. And so now scientists, you know, with the Yamanaka factor breakthrough, with epigenetic clocks, with understanding the nine hallmarks, and now with aging being thought of as a disease, there's a mindset shift that says, well, let's just start ticking boxes on each one of these hallmarks until we figure out a way to mitigate and or slow that process down so that this organism ages slower, right? This pace of aging slows down. And that's where, you know, it's a long-winded answer to your question about, you know, I'm going to be a centenarian. Can I do it? You just turned 50. And I would say this, if you take a 90 year old who's in poor health and, you know, are we where we can take this person and make them live to 100? No, we're not. But if you take a 50 year old who's in good health and has been taking care of themselves and continues to do this, look, this is biology. This is a marathon. This is longitudinal. There, And I always say this too, there's no easy button. There's no magic pill. There's no silver bullet for living healthier longer, period. You got to put in the work. But The advancements that are happening in cellular medicine in the last decade or so, combined with 
lifestyle, functional medicine, you know, all the things we know we need to do, you know, cold plunges. And I saw Brett on recently and I love the way he talked about it. It's like, this, this is your mind, right? This is, you know, not negotiating with your mind. Yeah. Beating your mind. And I love that. But you know, there's a lot of things we've learned now. There's a lot of people out there pushing the envelope even, even further. And I, you know, I think it, as we educate ourselves and we, you know, separate the truth from the fiction and cellular medicine, science, and, you know, a lot of these new innovations all converge in what I call this, you know, this longevity movement. Yeah, I do think so. And there's a lot of people who do too. And, you know, I get asked all the time, can people live to 130, 150? I don't know. And neither does anybody else. We won't know till it happens. But if it's at all possible, now is is the time that if it's ever been possible before, now is the, the time because it's moving really fast. Yeah. And it's a, I guess it becomes a hot topic, you know, when you're north of 50, which I am now, you start thinking about, you know, these things, as you know. And that's why I wanted to get you on today, mate, because, you know, this is personal. And the fact that we've connected, we want to add more boxes to the 80. I want to add 20 more now. And I've got a freaking tattoo to remind myself about prevention rather than the cure every single day. I'm looking for the, you know, health is one of my highest values. So I'm always looking for, I hate the word hacks, but you know what I mean, to add to my repertoire routine. And it's fascinating because I've never heard that. Like what you just said is aging is a disease. That's, I can't even fucking compute with that. Like that's, that's even, that's just hard to get your head around because aging is such a ingrained way of life, but it's a disease. And with dis, dis-ease, it can be prevented. Hundred percent. Yeah, you you wow. nailed it. And listen, I would say to anybody that's struggling with you know that concept of aging being disease, don't get wrapped around the axle around that. It's just that when we have a mindset shift in something as big as and critical as the aging process, it just opens doors into new thought, right, and new ways of looking and solving problems that we've just solved the same way forever. You said it a second ago. You said prevention rather than the cure, right? That's how you do it. You stay out in front of it. You try to prevent, slow, reverse the functional decline of this living organism so that you're not having to depend on whatever the you know the solution is at the end stage. So you went down to Costa Rica. You, you, you helped set up RMI, Regenerative Medicine Institute, RMI. You were the CEO of that, out of it now. What was that all about? You know, and where's stem cell at the moment? Yeah, so, you know, RMI was um was a lot of fun. I'm super proud of what we built there and it was really taking a lot of these concepts that were coming from a lot of different angles and synthesizing them into, you know, treatment plans and we were really focused on trying to create objectivity in this data that was coming back from patients and you know everybody loves a scorecard and healthcare is tough because it's very subjective a lot of the times so there was a lot of testing that went on to try to validate and or measure the improvements of some of these these treatments but where is stem cell now is like such a big word or such a big question because there's a place in Mexico that I saw recently that is doing induced pluripotent stem cells. They're actually, I don't know a ton about them, but they're actually, you know, what appear to be using like the Yamanaka factors in treating patients. And there's places like this all over the world that we don't even know about that are just maybe not great at marketing. Um, But there's, you know, the next big sort of milestone, I think that people that we're going to hit certainly stateside is going to be reprogramming of stem cells. What does that mean? And also what is, what is a stem cell or one of the example plans that you'd put someone on? I mean, 
remember when we first connected is like, Trav, come down to Costa Rica, let's get you hooked up and let's get you on a program. What does that actually mean? So, you know, the, the stem cell is the only cell in the body that can differentiate into other cell types, right? That's what makes it special and unique. Um, and one of the core principles around at, at RMI was that there are three main types of stem cells in the body, and they support your musculoskeletal, immune, and vascular systems. And they're the foundation or the basis for those systems. And the idea is that if you take those cells and freeze them in time, so no different than when your child is born and you save the umbilical cord and, and God forbid, they, you may need to call on it later in life. You know, it's still got all of these really young viable cells in the cord that stay frozen in time while, while this person ages. It's the same concept with adults is you can collect your cells, the younger, the better, because they're just you know, the genes that are being expressed when they're younger are different than the ones that are older. It's part of the operating system. And then you, as you get later in life, you come back, you get those cells reinfused. And the idea and the theory is that they will return to your bone marrow and make copies of their younger selves and influence the other cells to behave more like them. And then we also use an umbilical cord. They're their own lab at RMI and, and run by a really, really fabulous and competent team. And so when you blend this autologous allogeneic cell, you know, therapy together. The idea is that, you know, you're going to reduce systemic inflammation. You're going to put the body in a better micro environment to be healthier, longer. And then as you sort of adopt this cellular medicine protocol into other lifestyle components, like, you know, just good lifestyle behaviors, then that's the best idea that, you know, that anyone had at the time in terms of how to apply stem cells and then measure it, you know, do regular testing every six months or so, come back and see what's going on and then tweak the, turn the dials as necessary based on, on those results. Yeah. You see a lot of, you know, the people that you especially know that I know that dart off to Central America, South America, you know, all different parts of the world. That's not the US or Australia and go and get you know, hooked up and go and get a, a treatment because this some of this technology isn't available for whatever reason. Why wouldn't it be available in in say the states as as much as it is in other countries? You know, there's there's a couple of answers there, and and one is if you look at the Western medicine model in in general, and certainly in the states, it's built on symptomatic medicine, right? It's you go to the doctor, he diagnoses the symptom. We're not going to talk and, about the government and politics here too much. No, no. We're going to stay on this side. <laughs> no, I'll, I can. I've answered this question before, and I'm pretty good at staying on this side of the line. But no, it, it is. I mean, doctors go to med school to learn to diagnose and treat symptoms of disease, and they do it with pharmaceutical targets for the most part. And so the idea is you feel better, you don't always get better. And we don't do a lot of root cause medicine in the States. And so safety and efficacy is really a big thing. Anytime you're bringing a new therapy and or drug to the market. So that has to be done. There's been a ton of studies on safety and efficacy. But I think that at the end of the day, why isn't it available in the States is it probably comes down to the pundits will tell you there's safety and efficacy concerns um, that haven't been met yet. And the proponents will tell you that, you know, it doesn't fit the economic model of, you know, the, the pharmaceutical industry and sort of the hospital model and all that. You know, that's that's what a lot of the answers will sort of point you back to. Yeah, yeah. Mike. We'll pivot. What are the top kind of questions, top three questions, or just top one question that you get asked the most about longevity being in this space? The first one is, you know, what you asked, can we live to, you know, 120 or 30 or 50? And I, and I answered that. The next one would be, does it work? Do stem cells work? And that's another big question in that 
do you know what you got were stem cells? You know, do you know how many were viable? Do you know how many, you know, the type, I mean, it's, so there's a lot of questions around that question that typically come up, but I will say this in a lab that knows what they're doing in a patient that is a good candidate that has been diagnosed by a competent doctor. um, The answer is yes, they can. And we've seen a tremendous amount of, of impact um, on people's lives by doing this. And then the third question that I would get asked most about longevity would be, what can I start doing today? Or is it too late for me? And the answer is, you know, always it's never too late, but you know, lifestyle, 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 get some sleep, all the things they've been telling us, you know, get good sleep, exercise, stress, keep that stress down and think outside the box a little bit. You know, if you think it's silly to go for a 30 minute walk in the morning, have sunlight, get outside your comfort zone and and start understanding the benefits and the value at a psychological, emotional, spiritual, and, and physical level of sunlight early in the morning, of grounding, of breath work, of all of these things. I can't think of anything personally. I mean, I take my supplements, I exercise, I have my aura ring, I try to get my sleep, I play around with different sleep supplements, all natural stuff to do this. But I can't think of anything that's impacted me more than breath work and meditation, grounding and sunlight first thing in the morning. Those are the, and you know, hydrated, you know, staying hydrated. Those are the things that have the biggest impact on how the, it's going to set the tempo of my day because then I'm more likely to be going all out, going at a level 10 in the gym, I'm more likely to, you know, be in a a better mental state, treating people with kindness. And I'm not all wrapped up in my shit and my head and everything else. So I get asked that a lot. What can I do from a longevity standpoint? And there's, you know, most of the things are pretty obvious, you know, quit eating bad stuff, quit being sedentary, quit having a bad attitude. You and I talked about this earlier, but there's two things that we can control in life and that's attitude and effort. And you know, check your effort. Are you going a hundred or, you know, and check your attitude. Are you a person that's showing up with solutions and, you know, and kindness and, and grace every day? Um, are you a person trying to present all the problems with a bad attitude? And honestly, it impacts longevity. It impacts overall health. And you know what? I would argue not just yours, but those of us who are, you know, subject to bad effort and bad attitude. Mm-hmm. A couple of things and it just dawned on me. What are the wealthy people in the world that you've been around and you've got a hell of a network what are the wealthy people because some people might be listening to this going all right that's a really expensive kind of you know longevity there's a lot of money you know people are spending a lot of money on extending life and going getting the treatments that are not maybe accessible to me because i don't have the coin to do it what are the wealthy spending their money on in terms of longevity what does that routine kind of look like? Because I can go to the extreme and talk about Brian Johnson, of right. course, and we right. all can. And, you know, anyway, that's a, a for another podcast. <laughs> but Well, I would, you know, so that I'm going to see if I can come at this question from a couple of different angles. First, I always say that, you know, wealthy people didn't get wealthy by being stupid with their money. You know, so a lot of times, even though they may have more discretionary income, they're just really diligent about trying to understand exactly, you know, the opportunity and the efficacy of of a lot of these different treatments that you can see um, around the world. Um, But they they are typically a little bit more willing and a little bit less, I don't want to say less risk averse, but a little bit more, a, a larger appetite for pushing the envelope on some of the newer alternative medicines. I see a lot of that in plant medicine world. You see a lot of it in stem cell world. You're seeing a lot more of it now in, you know, this quote, 
sort of the the yogi, you know, breathwork world, right? Where so there's a lot of that. And I think, you know, another thing that I I do want to say is they say, well, you know, this is only for the wealthy and it is expensive. It's expensive to innovate, it's expensive to manufacture, create and deliver. But the wealthy have always sort of paid the way on the path to the democratization of breakthrough, you know, treatments and therapies like this. It's happening right now in space travel. You know, the the uber wealthy are able to to go to space for nine, 10 days on the space station. If you've got an extra 75, 80 million dollars burning a hole in your pocket, you can do it. Will it always cost that much? No, it won't. And will stem cells always be this expensive? I don't think so. I mean, you know, some people envision a world where you can take a pill and it will reprogram your cells in vivo, you know, in, in the body. And it's not that far away. And so I would just say that they are spending their money on things that are going, it's not like, you know, vampires trying to live forever kind of a thing. It is, I want to be healthy. And, you know, the number one fear of elderly people is loss of independence, right? If money's not a concern, if you've, if you've saved well, you've been fiscally responsible, then your number one fear is loss of independence. And that means you can't drive anymore. And, you know, you, you lose your mobility or you can't remember, you know, to turn the stove off and you become a, a danger to yourself. So that loss of independence is something that everybody fears and it can show up in a number of different ways. And so I would say that, you know, when you've got discretionary income and you have resources that, that you've built, there seem to be focused on that. And it's really about doing things they love to do or want to do bucket list things, maybe for as long as possible. It's not about trying to live to honestly, I don't out of the hundreds and hundreds of people that, that I've met and talked to and and done this, maybe a handful, less than 10 have talked about trying to live to 150 or 180. I'm not saying they don't want to, but the primary goal is really about that functional decline, man, trying to keep that as intact as possible for as long as possible. And I think that's the right goal, quite frankly. What do you include? Like you've been exposed to a lot of, you know, real high level thought leaders who are pushing the envelope in this space. What do you include in your day-to-day routine? You know, to and you've sort of touched on that. If we can briefly just go over that. What do you include? What have you taken the best bits of and now you're like dedicated dedicated you run your day-to-day routine again i hate using the word hacks yeah no i mean look to a certain extent you know it's just a word but so for me i'm kind of late to the party on some of this stuff you know it's really funny i I was at nyu and one of the actors in my student film there was a um a breathwork guy and he went into the berkshires and he's been doing breathwork for the last 30 something years and he was trying to tell me about it back then but i was so hard-headed that i didn't pay attention so i'm kind of late to the party with this stuff in the last few years i've been doing it but my routine in the morning looks like i wake up the first thing i do is you know a quick prayer of gratitude right i'm looking for gratitude and humility to start my day and i'm not saying the wheels don't fall off by 10 o'clock some mornings but you know, that's where I, I go first and foremost. The second thing I do is I go to breath work. You know, I immediately try to get into my breath work and regulate my nervous system and get everything calmed so that I can get up and start the day. From there, it's, you know, typically a quick meditation. Sometimes I'm not great at meditating. I'll tell everybody right now, I'm not a guy that can sit there for 30 or 45 minutes. If I squeeze eight to 10 minutes into a meditation, you know, it's a, it's a pretty good one for me. And that's just my brain just starts spinning and running. And I'm, with, through practice, I'll get better at it. I like to work out in the morning. So right after all that stuff, sometimes I'll hit a little black coffee, you know, as the stimulant to go work out, right? Because I've I've read somewhere that, you know, creatine coffee and pretty much creatine caffeine, these are the kind of things that actually have a pretty good impact on- And it increases fat loss as well. It increases increases fat loss. Yeah, yeah. It's the story of my life. 
<laughs> yeah. So I'll do that and, you know, get the workout in. I mean, I'm an early riser. So a lot of this stuff happens pretty early. And then, you know, I've got the six things, right? I saw Ivy Lee, six things is how I run my day. I put, you know, the night before I list the six most important things in order of priority that I have to do the next day. I don't move on from number one to number two until number one is done, even if that means it takes all day. And there's a great story about Charles Schwab and Ivy Lee is where I, I stole that from. So Schwab was head of Bethlehem Steel back in the early 1900s, and Ivy Lee was this productivity guru. And Schwab said, hey, I want you to come interview my executive team and, and see how we can be more productive. And Ivy Lee said, you know, give me an hour and, you know, with them and I'll, I'll, I'll help you. And, um, so he went and he talked to him and, and he sat down with Charles Schwab and he says, what's the number one thing that I need to know? And he said, by the way, what do I owe you for meeting with my team? And he said, you don't owe me anything right now. He said, give it a few months, give it three months. And if you think it's worth something, then send me what you think it's worth. So he said, well, what can I do? And he told him about the six things, write down six things in order of priority that you need to do tomorrow. And do not move from number one to number two until number one is done. And it's really that simple. And so three months later, Charles Schwab sent him a check for $25,000 to Ivy Lee. And I think the modern day equivalent of that would be around $500,000. And it was that simple thing. Sometimes we try to, I, and I'm, a, I'm guilty. I like apps and I like things and buzzers and <laughs> reminders and whistles and bells. And I like all that stuff, you know, admittedly, but. Man, I write down six things in a notebook and wake up and start trying to figure that out and get from number. And you, the, the trick is not moving from number one to number two until number one is done. Even if it takes all day, then number two becomes number one the following day. So I do that. I come back after the workout. I hit my six things and go to work. I like to break up my day with some breaks, some intentional breaks in there. Try to get outside for a minute and just, I'm a grinder. I'll grind through an entire day and never look up if, you know, if I let myself, um, supplementation. I just recently discovered something I'll share it with you called momentum longevity shake. Sounds like I'm making a plug for somebody out there. Maybe and I, I am. I'm sold. <laughs> Trav, they have, it's like this ingredient profile and they're the, how the ingredient, where they come from. It's basically every supplement in a shake. I got chocolate. I've only been doing it for about four or five days now. But the idea is you don't have to take, you know, I mean, look, my supplement counters got like a massive amount of things on it. I had a functional medicine team at RMI and we would do my labs every 90 days because like you, I traveled a lot. I traveled around the world. I was speaking. I was sleeping in different beds. I was eating not as great as I should. I was checking a box on my workout. Like I would walk into the hotel gym, pass by the dumbbell rack, pick one or two of those weights up and leave and call a workout. So like it was, you know, it was bad. It was terrible. And, and <laughs> it was terrible, man. I've seen you. You don't do that. The, but my labs had come back, you know, real. My HSCRP was super high and all these other inflammatory biomarkers were off the charts. And so I started trying to be a little bit more disciplined with that while I was on the road. But supplementation helped a lot, man. We would dial it up and, you know, I needed milk thistle 190 days and then the next 90 I didn't. And then, you know, D3 is a staple in any supplementation regimen, right? And then, you know, I've been following Dave a little bit and kind of some of the stuff that he's been talking about. Yeah, Dave, it makes a lot of sense. Got to be friends and, you know, you sit at dinner with him and listen to him talk about it. And you know, it's kind of hard to not have it make sense to you. He's definitely a pioneer with uh, a lot of that um, supplements and hacks and everything else. And these are things that we're not going to find. Look, the Western medicine model is not coming to save us. You know, it's going to take guys like him and, and the other thought leaders in that space. So yeah, supplementation. And then 
I am not as disciplined in my sleep routine as I should be. I would love to tell you that I turn off all the lights and the blue light blockers and, you know, I take a warm bath 90 minutes before bed, but I don't. And I've been using melatonin, a product called Alpha Theta Ultra PM, which just works, I think, in the amygdala to quieten it down, you know, because that's our survival mechanism. It's kind of keeping us awake on high alert. And so that's how I kind of get wind down in the evening and try to get, you know, good sleep and aura ring. I mean, look, if I get in the high 70s to the mid 80s on my aura ring score, we're doing celebration dances over here. I've never had a 91 or a 94. And, you know, I have friends that do it all the time and I'm super jealous. And maybe I need to start the blue light blockers and the warm baths and all that other stuff, you know, or a hot sauna or something before bed to get into the nineties. But I'm pretty happy when I get north of six and a half to seven and a half hours and and I got a, you know, a pretty good aura ring score. So that's my sleep. That's kind of my daily routine. That's what I picked up along the way. I will tell you this more than anything. Be curious. For sure. Do not shut it out just because it doesn't sound right or make sense to you on the surface. Just be curious. And when we're curious, it's opened more doors. It's what got me into RMI. I was hearing this crazy story about longevity and stem cells and all this, but I'm curious by nature. And so I just stayed curious until it finally made some sense to me. And the next thing you know, it's, you know, we built this, this really uh, cool business. Yeah. I love that. And, and it was funny, you know, our, our mutual friend, Brett, Harmeling, who was on the podcast and bucket listers go back to that one. It was a couple of episodes ago. And uh, the first thing I said to him when he was online with me, I said, dude, this is the first time I've seen you with clothes on, to be honest, because every, <laughs> every post that you do online on Instagram and whatever, you know, you're either in your, <laughs> your fucking infrared sauna, sweating bullets uh, with your crazy beard and, or you're in an ice bath, giving you know, giving us the uh, thought of the day. So I'm surprised that he turned up with with the shirt on. To be honest, <laughs> yeah, on the podcast that was nice <laughs> of him, podcast. right? We could have done the podcast from a uh, from an ice ice bath. From an ice bath, made him sit in there for 50 minutes. He probably could do it. <laughs> yeah, um, mate, who who else? You mentioned Dave Asprey. We've talked about Brett, of course. Who's another? You know, couple of thought leaders in this longevity space that you look to for advice because we can get thrown into all sorts of different go down all sorts of different rabbit holes. Everyone's got an opinion. You've been around a lot of people, which I respect. Who do you look to? You know, it's everybody. It's such a fragmented industry and it's really easy to get confused with it all out there. But there's a handful of guys that I like that I think are good for the industry in itself. And Sinclair is always up there. You know, what he's doing with epigenetic reprogramming and what he's, you know, trying to do, he's, he's kind of gone pretty commercial. He's leveraged his ability to, you know, to market his thoughts and ideas. Um, What's his book you know, again? It was Lifespan. That's it. Lifespan. Yeah. And he's into all kind of supplementation and testing and everything else now. But, you know, look, he's a smart guy and he's pushed this industry forward as a pioneer. I like Atia, man. I think Atia's doing it great. I think he's great for this industry. He is just such a, you know, common sense kind of approach. He's heavy on the exercise, right? I mean, I it's think Peter if you, Atia, guys. Yeah, Peter, yeah, Dr. Peter Atia. Atia. But I love his approach. We already talked about Dave. I think Mark Hyman. I think, you know, our diets in the in the US Trav are just abysmal, mate. We got all these processed foods and all this stuff. And Mark Hyman has done more about you know, nutritional awareness and the things he's doing now and, and, you know, done a new testing thing called function health that I'd done. 
So I like what he's doing. You know, those are the biggies for me as, um, as those guys. And look, I love Huberman, man. I've, I watch his stuff. I've never met him. I don't know him, but I love what he's doing out there. Cause he's kind of crossing over out of just, you know, this whole neuroscience realm. He and Peter Atia talk all the time on their, their show, their podcast. I love those guys at that layer, at that level. Right. Love that. There's some great resources there, guys. We've got, you know, apart from yourself, mate, David Sinclair, Peter Atiyah, Mark Feynman, Andrew Huberman, Dave Asprey. And I think that if you're listening, watching this, longevity is a thing that, you know, you really want to get curious about. It's important to get good information. And apart from yourself, mate, there's some great resources, great thought leaders, great books, podcasts, etc., out there. But very important not to get overwhelmed you know with any goal that you've got in life you can easily get overwhelmed and I've always said to people that have a goal is pick a handful I reckon three four max thought leaders in the space and just say no to everyone else and let and just go deep on their stuff yeah in fact I say four and more than that it's too much information and Talking about obesity, you know, we suffer from infobesity these days. And you can definitely get infobesity, especially in the longevity space, let alone every other freaking space that we nerd out about. Mate, got to wrap it up. What's next for you? So, you know, I left RMI and right now I'm on sabbatical. I've really enjoyed kind of sharing a lot of the knowledge in this short form content that I'm learning. Um, that's a that's a phrase that I just found out about. On some of the social stuff, I am... Um, starting a show called Longevity Powered by You. And the idea there, Trav, it's kind of multi-layered, but nobody's coming to save us. Nobody's coming to save you. You have to do your part. And there's a lot of great science and innovation that's happening right now that will help and will guide. But at the end of the day, we're all the hero of our own story and our own journeys. And so you know, you take a guy like our good friend, Charlie Engel. And so what I like, you know, he's done this, he ran across the Sahara Desert. So in Longevity Powered by You, it's kind of the science and medicine of longevity meets the personal whys and reasons for wanting to live long, healthier, longer, right? Like you, these really cool, relatable stories and what you've been able to do with the bucket list. And I've been in the rooms, man. I've seen the guys pick their phones up and take those, book those trips for <laughs> that they've been talking to their wives about or their kids about for years. And right there in the room, that's the kind of stuff that matters. And so we can talk about, we can nerd out about resveratrol and intamin and mitochondrial health and, you know, CD34 positive stem cells. You could do all day long and people will glaze over until you really bring it home to say, this is why it matters and this is what it's about. And so I'm hopeful that we can blend a lot of the, the science. And like you said, with, you know, some of these key core concepts, not get too in the weeds on it, but with some really cool, relatable stories from people and they're wise. Like, why do we want to live an extra, get two more rows of boxes on our 80 squares? Why do we want to go from 80 to 100 squares? Why? What's your passion? What's your purpose? What will you do with them? And what's in the world? And then how do you intend to do it? And I think if we could do that in Longevity Powered by You, I think it'd be really cool. And hopefully people will listen to it and relate to it. Well, let's circle right back to this is the Bucket List Life podcast. And... I want people to live their bucket list, you know, before it's too late, not wait until they get given a use by date. And if it's 80 squares, if it's 90 squares, if it's 100 squares and beyond, 
you know, it's about living a fruitful life with more meaning, more purpose, more fulfillment, more gratitude. Dude, thanks so much for adding value. I've probably got another six hours of questions. I will not go there. We'll wait for we'll wait for phase two there. Look, how can people connect with you? Where do you spend most of your time on the socials, etc.? I'm pretty, you know, on there every day. I, you know, I'm trying to maintain some consistency on Instagram. Greg Schindler, you know, just G R E G S H I N D L E R, and you can do that at dot com, or you can do it on Instagram. It's it's pretty simple. Put all that in the show notes as well. And listen, I love talking about this stuff, Trav. So if anybody out there wants to, you know, if, if you try to reach out to me. I will hit you back. I'm that guy. I will you DM me. I will help you as much as I can. Yeah, buddy. So cool to connect. Thanks for the chat beforehand. I'm coming back there next month. And I, as I said, I'm speaking in Dollywood for D- DLP again. So <laughs> big bucket list tick speaking at Dollywood uh, mid-year. But uh, now nah, uh, I'll be heading over there. If you, we'll, we'll hang out. We'll, we'll catch up and do some cool stuff together, buddy. So thanks heaps. Thank you so much for having me. Cheers, bro. Thanks so much for listening to the Bucket List Life podcast with the world's number one bucket list expert, Trav Bell. For more great content, go to www.thebucketlistguy.com. We'll see you next time.